All right, we're just about at the hour, so if you did shuffle off for coffee, <laughs> then come on back. There will be. Judging from the questions I have, we will probably fill the hour. <laughs> and I imagine there's others out there. Um, again, a good opportunity to just uh, thank uh, Dr. Gibson for uh, sharing his time with us. So thank you very much. Uh, the, the, the one off the top is, uh, should we use trumpets at the beginning of worship? So. Yes. Okay. There you go. Moving right along. I'll, I'll try to intersperse. If, you, if you'd like to ask a question, feel free. Um, but I do have some written ones as well. So is there anyone, uh, Jones, ask a question right off that's got it? Okay, please. I think we all appreciated the distinctives between the Roman Catholic um, liturgy or, uh, and uh, the Reformers. Were there groups during those days that did not really embrace the reformers and yet they knew they wanted to leave the Roman model? I mean, it, it wasn't just one or the other. I, 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 anyway. Uh, yeah, I, I, now you're pressing me in. I, I did go to my church history classes at seminary, but I think the, Ana, the Anabaptist movement would be an example of when the Reformation happened. Um, there were others who wanted to leave the Catholic Church but didn't want to do everything the Reformers did. The Anabaptists would be an example of that. Um, but each, you know, the Reformation was not a uniform monochrome movement, as you've seen even with these liturgies. Luther did something different to Calvin, who did something different to Thomas Cranmer. You know, there were differences, but the essence was the same. The gospel had been corrupted. It was by faith alone and Christ alone grace alone. Uh, they recovered that. They were all on the same page on that. But there were differences on, on, on different aspects. But the Anabaptists would probably be the, the group that were most distinct from the, the actual ref, reformers of the 16th century. Yeah. I'll switch between a, an asked question and a, a written question here just so everybody gets a shake. Uh, this, this seems to have two parts as best I can discern it. Uh, one, can you, you speak to the, uh, uh, the historicity of uh, Pado communion in Reformed worship, if it has any pedigree whatsoever? And then the other one is uh, how the, uh, uh, the keys of the kingdom, guarding the keys of the kingdom or using the king, keys of the kingdom have been understood in Reformed worship. Okay, so uh, Pado communion, that's the view that... Uh, children participate in communion as soon as they can swallow <laughs> safely um, and uh, drink the wine. Uh, some people would say that kids have been participating in pedo communion from their mother's womb because the mother eats the bread and drinks the wine and technically speaking so is the child in the womb. Uh, I don't know the full history of pedo communion. It had a, a, a uh, um, if there was ever an early form of it, I don't know, but it had a bit of a, a resurgence um, or a, an initial uh, interest about 10, 15 years ago in a movement called Federal Vision, where it became a big thing that children should all receive the sacrament. Um, and, you know, at first you read it and you think, well, what's the issue here? The children of Israel came out 
through the Red Sea, would they not have had the Lord um, the Passover meal with their parents that night? Would they not have eaten it? And there's nothing in the scripture that says they didn't. And so the argument was children always had the Passover, so why don't children have the Lord's Supper? Um, so I have, there's a hand. He's just waiting. No, no, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thought, He's up next. He's up I next. Thought that was a, I thought that was a protest. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, don't worry, I'm not federal vision. You know? No, I'm not either. So yeah. I'd stand like the Stevens to protest. So, yeah, 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 okay. I thought there, I thought there was a red dot on my forehead. <laughs> if you get a clear shot, take him out. Um, so, on surface, that sort of looks the same, you know, but when you read the scriptures more clearly, it will say, it says that in Exodus and Deuteronomy, when your children ask you what this meal means for you, you tell them it's a reminder that God brought us out of Egypt uh, with a strong arm, etc. And so there seems to be actually a distinction that the children are not participating. They're, they're watching the parents do it. And they're saying, what does this mean to you? It's not, what does this mean for us? Why are we all taking this? But, so I think that's a helpful exegetical point. Um, and it's not the same as baptism, the, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. It is a nourishment. It is a, a feeding to God's people in their understanding of what Christ has done for them and nourishing their faith in him. So I think there has to be a certain level of understanding. And I don't think a one and a half, two-year-old can have that. So I don't think it should be given to children. That said, um, John Knox had children as young as six and eight years old coming to the Lord's Supper. Mm. Calvin, I think, was about eight years old. If For them, if a child could articulate the basic tenets of the Christian faith, they were welcome at the table. That's my view. Uh, I... Um, I think waiting till they're 18 is too old. I think 12 is a decent mark. But I, again, I, I wouldn't want to make that a restriction, you know, or, or a strict age limit. I think if children can understand the gospel and articulate it, they should come to the table. Some people make a big deal about it, but they need to be able to self-assess themselves. I agree. Uh, but I don't think that text in 1 Corinthians should be overplayed. I think it... It's important that we don't come to the table in a way that would bring judgment on ourselves or on others. Uh, but at the same time, we shouldn't make the fence of the table so high that the sheep can't jump over mm. it. You know, it's a, it's a table for sinners. So uh, your other question was to do with the keys of the kingdom. Um, I should probably say very little on that because I, uh, I would need to... Understand exactly what the question is, but the keys of the kingdom being what binds things is that you think what's coming behind? You know, it, yeah, it was uh, my best attempt to kind of discern the two pieces. So I think you probably leave it at at that. Okay. So, no if need. someone I'll, wants to ask me about that afterwards, please, please do. Excellent. Okay. Uh, thanks. I had a, a, I guess, two-part follow-up question on the liturgical uh, calendar idea. Uh, the first is, if the Synod of Dort is mandating that we observe it and the Westminster Divines are prohibiting it, there are obviously very strong feelings about it. And my question is, why did each of those parties feel the way they did? And kind of the second question is, how does that tie into in Romans 14, where Paul says that observing one day as, as holy or not is, 
is a matter of conscience and we shouldn't be judging each other on it. And if, if that's the case, how do we in the church today uh, handle that tension while organizing corporate worship? Okay, so uh, the, the Westminster Divines and then the Puritan tradition after them were big on what has now become known as the regulative principle. Somebody told me recently that apparently, and I think this is a fairly uh, trusted source, said that the, the, the phrase, the term regulative principle was only used in 1946 or 49 in an OPC publication by John Murray or something, that, that actually it does not predate that, though the, though the actual concept does. But anyway, there's this principle called regulative principle. It is the view that you only do what God commands in Scripture. And since he does not command the keeping of Christmas or Easter, therefore we shouldn't do it. And that is where the Westminster Divines and the Puritans generally landed. Um, Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10 is a great example. They go in and they offer unauthorized fire to the Lord, which he did not command. And so they were struck down in death. And so this is the idea, we need to do this in worship. So if it's not commanded, we shouldn't do it. Holy feast days are not commanded, we shouldn't do it. Others like Bullinger, Swingley, uh, Ursinus, Butzer, others, Turretin, would say that, that that is an overly scrupulous application of that principle, and that if these holy ordinances of the feast days are edifying to the church, um, and build up the saints and actually evangelize, in a sense, uh, as well those who are watching it, uh, it can only be a good thing. So there's a really helpful article by um, Danny, Daniel Hyde called Not Holy But Helpful. Um, and he assesses the history of the reformers in whether they kept or didn't keep the the holy feast, the evangelical feast days. Uh, it's not helpful, but uh, no, helpful but not holy, or not holy but helpful. Some, it's one of those ways. Um, and it's a, you can get it online. It's a very helpful article. And he goes through the, the reformers, all who use the evangelical feast days. Two, two texts in Acts that I think are significant is that Paul stays in Ephesus until after the Passover. Because he doesn't want to, he wants to be in Ephesus for the Passover. And then another time he wants to get somewhere for the Passover. Now, some interpret that as pure evangelism. He wants to get there to get the, to, you know, at the time so he can evangelize the Jews. I think that by now Pentecost, Oh, sorry. Yes, Pentecost. It mentions Pentecost. He wanted to stay for Pentecost, which, excuse me, which was still the Jewish uh, uh, feast. Okay, so he wants to stay for Passover. One of them was unleavened bread. The other was Pentecost. Sorry, and he want, in both times he wants to stay and not leave the city on these two occasions. Now Pentecost, at that point in the history of the church, for well over a decade. Um, was now a Christian, you know, they had a Christian understanding of what Pentecost was, not just this Jewish festival. And yet he wants to stay for Pentecost or get there in time for Pentecost or for God, which one it is. 
The point is, I don't think that's just purely evangelism for the Jews. I think there's something significant there. And it's sort of just stated in an unspoken way. The argument would be, the fact it is so unspoken shows it was just such a part of church life that Paul and Luke didn't need to make a big deal about it. So that, that, that's the biblical argument. Um, yes, they had different views on it, the Westminster Divines and the Synod of Dort, which was earlier. Um, and is it a Romans 14 issue? Some people observe some days and others. For me, yes. For me, it would not be something to disfellowship over or to go after somebody on and say you're not truly reformed or you're not um, orthodox enough on this issue. I, I think the fact the Reformation period had most of the reformers practicing these things and not doing away with them, um, I think shows that uh, there was a breadth of generous understanding amongst them. Thank you. We'll go to a written question here. Uh, you'll hear the distinction made between uh, teaching the word, so like a Sunday school or, or a conference, and preaching the word. Uh, how, how should we think about uh, those distinctions? How should we think about that difference? What's, what's different about those two things? Yeah, so, you know, there is a general teaching of the word. Uh, parents do it with their children, Deuteronomy. Six, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, mind, strength, and you shall teach these things to your children. So there's teaching in the home where the word is taught, passed on. Uh, I think there's examples of a, uh, um, Priscilla and Aquila teaching Apollos in their home, a married couple teaching a young man. Uh, so you've got this sort of informal, familial, household teaching that goes on. And then you have the more formal teaching of elders to the congregation. And I think we should distinguish those two things. Encourage teaching in all our homes, in all sort of small group areas, things like that. Uh, but then there is teaching done by the elders in the congregation. Uh, preaching is another word uh, for the communication of God's truth. Uh, is teaching and preaching the same thing? I think they, are, they overlap. I think that uh, I think the preaching is heralding the truth before God's people, and teaching is still conveying the truth, but perhaps not so much in a heraldic, declarative way. But it still carries authority in the church. Um, there are some traditions in Sydney, Australia, where teaching and preaching are sort of viewed as totally synonymous, and therefore a one-on-one -on -one Bible study is no different to a sermon. And and I want to keep those things quite distinct. There's something far more authoritative uh, in, in a sermon, in preaching, than there is in just communicating one-to-one. -one. So there's, you know, uh, Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So even our singing together as a congregation is itself a form of teaching each other. Um, but that is very different to an elder, an ordained person teaching in the church. So I would also connect it to ordination. Uh, that's the difference. So one-on-one -on -one Bible study, women meeting during the week, doing Bible studies. My wife runs a women's Bible study in our home every other Thursday. You know, she teaches the word. It, for her, for me, it's edification. It's that sort of mutual, let's meet together, let's read scripture, let's encourage each other. 
Uh, she's not a teacher in the church in any official capacity. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Dr. Gibson, I'd like to ask you about the um, purpose of worship with respect to discipleship. And by discipleship, um, I'm thinking in particular of the transformation of one's character into Christ-likeness, where we desire the things that Jesus desires, we um, love the things that he loves, and therefore, as a consequence, um, we are led to do the things that Jesus would do if he were standing in our shoes. And I'm paraphrasing others when I use that terminology. And I'm thinking about the um, things that have, at least in my experience, uh, I've noticed that lead us away from that consumeristic worship, big box church, you know, in particular, but also the, and as a Baptist, forgive me friends for saying this, the cult of Paul and reformed theology, which often puts, you know, great emphasis, time, attention, and study on, you know, on, on Pauline uh, writings and teaching and that. And I don't mean disrespect towards Paul or his letters or anything like that, but the emphasis on getting it right in our head as opposed to the transformation of the character. And so I'd like to just ask, you know, what thoughts you might have about, um, about the transformative disciple-making effect of worship um, uh, that, that worship might have. And if you have thoughts in that direction, thank you. Okay. Yeah, very helpful question. I think that um, worship is an integral part of discipleship and shouldn't be downplayed in that regard. It's not, it's not a distinct thing from discipleship. I mean, uh, you know, you could say discipleship's part of worship because all of life is worship, so your discipleship is part of your worship. You could also say worship is part of discipleship because it's an integral means by which someone is discipled. So you go either way there. So they're inter integrally connected. I think that discipleship involves an individualist, individualistic element. I don't mean individualism there, but just an individualistic element. It's about me being conformed to the image of Christ as a man in the image of God or for a, a woman in the image of God. So there's an individual, there's a personal element, <clears throat> but we're not, we're not islands. We're connected to the body of Christ. And so our discipleship, our sanctification, our becoming more like the Lord Jesus is not just a personal thing, a private thing. It's a corporate thing. Uh, and it's to be done in fellowship with the body. You know, uh, you're, we're all members of the body. And so our discipleship should be viewed first and foremost as a body thing, not a personal thing, as, as a corporate thing. And so being a church on a Sunday for church worship uh, you are experiencing what the Westminster Divines called the means of grace by which God effects his salvation in us. Uh, prayer, fellowship, and preaching, and uh, the Lord's Supper. These are the, the ordained means of grace by which you progress. And I suppose the way I would describe it is it's like a child being adopted into a family from outside another family. And what is the way that they will take on the family characteristics the best? 
is if they're at the dinner table, they're playing, they're part of the devotions, they're just part of life in that new family, they will become more and more conformed to the image of the family and to the father and mother, etc. And so I think that's what we need to think about for individuals. Um, Get to family, get to corporate worship. Be there present when the church is putting on the services because those services over years will shape you, form you, help conform you to the image of Christ. And uh, the, the services of worship will be like guardrails in their pilgrimage. It'll sort of keep them on the straight and narrow. Whereas if it's just them and Jesus and their Bible doing quiet times, it, it's just not going to go as well. So this connects with maybe another question that I had heard might get asked to do with daily worship services. You know, the quiet time is a modern invention. Now, I'm not against it. It's actually got ancient roots. The first um, mention of a possible quiet time in the Bible is Isaac is out in the field meditating, it says, when Rebecca appears, when his servant has gone and got Rebecca. He's out. So, you know, he's doing his quiet time. So it should encourage all single people to keep doing their quiet times. <laughs> could, could, could get lucky. Could get lucky. Uh, so there is that private element. Daniel prays on his own in his room. He bows the knee and prays. The Psalms are full of quiet times with God. Really important. And yet in the New Testament, the emphasis is not on you spending time with the Lord. That's important. Jesus did that. Paul does that. It's important. Jesus said, go to your room, close the door and pray. So there is that element. But the primary emphasis is do not give up meeting with one another. Gather with God's people. Meet together. You know, they continued steadfastly in prayer, fellowship, apostles' doctrine and Lord's Supper. So all of that, the corporate element is for me primary for a person's discipleship and sanctification. Does that answer your question? I guess, um, yep. The primacy of Christ likeness. Uh huh. You know, uh, and uh, it, it's where where I think I'm coming from, and that's sort of the turn that I've made over the last few years. Yeah. Uh, and the emphasis on the gospel and what Jesus tells us to do. Yeah. As opposed and practicing and teaching towards that and yes. how worship is that, as opposed to getting it right. Okay, I, okay, I hear you. And yeah, yeah. And, and that's my my quip about the cult of Paul. You know, where has the emphasis been in yes. reform teachings? Uh huh. And that is it on Christ likeness? Sure. As opposed to right. Practice, yeah. Okay, that, sorry, a helpful other element to your question. So I would say it's both and, isn't it? It's not either or. And yes, I do think there have been aspects of churches have focused in on maybe the more Pauline letters or the Pauline gospel, which is the same gospel as Christ's gospel or Peter's or John's. Um, and this is where a couple of things that can help with that, the service of the word, right, means you've got different readings in a service, not just... If you're preaching through Romans, they're not just getting Romans every single week. They're actually getting a gospel reading because that's what we do in church. We have a gospel reading as well as an epistle reading. So the variety of readings in the service can help with that. Um, and also the variety of, of preaching series, morning and evening worship. You can 
you know, divided up where you where you have that focus on Christ. Um, I, I think that tension is there. I, I see it in seminaries where there is such a focus, rightly so, on orthodox doctrine, getting it right. And we must get it right. Paul's clear on that. We must be those who handle rightly the word of truth and know the soundness of the gospel and pass it on. But there's also, so that's orthodoxy. There's also orthopraxy, which is pure living, Christ-like living. And I think in some reform circles, that really does just get downplayed for the sake of pure doctrine. And so the conformity to Christ is as important as the conformity to Christian doctrine. And it's trying to find the balance for that. But I think that corporate worship that focuses on Christ and the loveliness of Christ and has that variety of hymns and scripture readings can maybe help keep that imbalance from creeping in. One of the written questions is referencing uh, referencing last night's lecture. Uh, you mentioned Eve was the first elect and symbol of the church. Um, how did you reach that conclusion and what's its significance? Why is that uh, noteworthy? I think that it's just, it struck me when I preached on Genesis 3.15 that, that I'd never appreciated that God chooses her to come back onto his side. I will put enmity between you and the woman is a judgment on the serpent, but it's also an act of grace on the woman. Because by eating from the fruit, she had entered an alliance with the serpent against God. And so for God to now say, I'm going to put enmity to the serpent, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, it means, it presupposes there's not enmity between them at this point. There's love and affection and there, there's an alliance going on. And so God comes in and sort of takes her back. She was on his team. She got snatched onto the other team and he's come and said, I'm taking you back onto my team. And so that's really what I was just trying to emphasize that I think that that, that opening line of Genesis 3.15 brings that out. The first elect member of the Christian church, um, yeah, it is what I mean it is. It's, uh, <laughs> she was chosen first. You know, we're, you know, all members of Christ's church are elect. So who was the first, who was the first member of the Christian church? Uh, Eve was. Uh, God's people are one in the Old and New Testament. The church doesn't begin in Acts. The church was there in the Old Testament. If you have a Reformed covenantal view, you see it's one people of God over two dispensations. And so I joke with my students at uh, seminary, I say, you know, ancient church history should begin with an Old Testament survey of the church. That, that's the ancient church, really. And church history shouldn't begin with, you know, Irenaeus or something in the second century, third century. It should begin with Eve in the Garden of Eden. And the Princeton theologians, when they taught church history, um, the, I've forgotten who the name was, he began with an, a survey of Old and New Testament of the church in the scriptures. So that's our hand. We're here. Thanks for coming, Dr. Gibson. Uh, just two twofold question about communion. Um, I attend a, a Bible church, so it's going to be more that the, the official teaching will be more memorial view of the supper rather than the Reformed Calvinistic view. Um, so I think I guess how it seems like what ends up happening, and just talking with fellow members or people that are in that 
in our world. It tends to be very um, self-focused, inward-focused. Um, and as I've studied and become convinced of the Reformed view, it, there's much more of a Christ focus. Um, but I guess, so the first question would be, how do you, I guess, how would you talk to somebody about getting out of that inward focus um, of, of the Lord's Supper um, in worship, um, you know, just briefly, you know, um, if you only have a few minutes to talk about it. And then um, we practice open communion um, where we do say, okay, if you're, you have to be a Christian in good standing at a, at a gospel church and you're free to take it. But then we hand it out in the pews, right? And sometimes when I'm handing it out, like I know, okay, this person is a visitor and they aren't a believer. And, you know, there's not really a way for me to say, no, you can't take that without being very disruptive. Mm -hmm. And maybe I ought to, uh, but, you know, is there a way to appropriately fence the table or is it, look, we've told you and now you're incurring judgment upon yourself. So I guess those are the two questions. Okay, so the first one, um, how do we avoid an inward self-focus? Um, I think the words of institution are what helps there. The minister's words as he, you know, gives the bread and the wine out, the few words said before that can help with that. Um, I don't know if I've got much advice personally. Uh, practically, I think it's helpful to have a, a song item either sung by an individual or the choir or the congregation sing it, um, or to have, as I mentioned, a scripture reading being read out during it to help keep our minds on Christ rather than me just sitting in silence in the pew. Again, my, I find my mind wandering. So practically, that's what I would do. Now, you're not in a position, it sounds like, of church leadership, so you're just going to have to go with what's happening there. But that, that was, that's what I would do. And, you know, in our church at the moment, they give out the tiniest little square of white gluten-free bread. It's like, <laughs> like, it like melts in your mouth. It's absolutely terrible. And um, if I, again, I would get sardo chunks of bread and the little cup with this tiny, like it just about wets your lips. Um, I was brought up with a common cup where we would take a massive swig, you know. <laughs> actually get a drink you know and it's this is the point it's a meal it's a meal and so we should have a big chunk of bread that I'm chewing on and that actually helps me concentrate that I this is a, a symbol of Christ's body given for me whereas this little tiny thing and then I would have glasses like big enough for a full mouthful I honestly if I was back as a minister I would have like kind of Please hear me out. Shot glasses. I would call them something else, but you know, you know the kind of talk. All right, we're out of time. This is, we're shutting this down. <laughs> yeah. if, if you get a clear shot, take them out. Um, so, because it's a meal, and then the thing I mentioned, I think coming to the table gives you a more sense of actually a communion together 
than the let's all eat together. But when we, when we all eat together, we're like the man in the benediction, you know, we're like, <laughs> and so we all close our eyes and it's a very individualistic thing at that point, you know, whereas you'd love to say, take and eat and look around at your brothers and sisters as you eat this, look them in the eye and smile and we're, we're members together participating here. So there, there's ways that I think it could be done better. I'd love to, I'd love a, someone to do the history of how we ended up from the Reformation where they generally came forward to, you know, where they came back. So, some people have said it's, it's, so now this answers, this goes to your second question. Some people have said that the elders going to the people in the pew was, was a form of fencing the table so they can decide who they offer the plate to. Whereas if you just say all come forward, you can't really stop someone coming forward. So to answer your question about what do you do if you're handing the bread out, there's a sense in which, well, first of all, people should be baptized, not just Christian. So in Joshua chapter 5, they come into the land, they're about to enjoy the fruit of the land, and Joshua says you first need to get circumcised because you haven't been, and then they celebrate the Lord. They, it's Lord's over. they celebrate the Passover, but they're first circumcised before that. So baptism first, then Lord's Supper. Um, I think you give the warning. Do not take this meal. It's not for you if you're not baptized or a Christian. Don't take it. Let it pass by. And, and you know, you can emphasize that in different ways. Um, but after that... I think as an elder or someone who's, you've done what you can, and it's, it's the person bringing judgment upon themselves, you know. And so I wouldn't, personally, I wouldn't fret too much about it. Now, if I knew somebody who was sleeping with their boyfriend or girlfriend, and they came to the Lord's Supper, and I as a minister knew that, I, I would be gently saying to them, listen, you're not to take this today. Or if I was giving it out in the pew, I would, you know, just pass the plate over them. <laughs> you know, if I knew that and they were trying to reach for it, I would say, no, it's not for you. This is not for you because you're living in sin. So that's where it would get a wee bit awkward. And, but it's a good thing, you know. Yeah. So hope that helps. Yeah. Right. This question goes right for the jugular. Uh, he said, the Bible says nothing about what we wear to worship. You're wrong. <laughs> no, I made that up. I'm making it more confrontational than it has to be. <laughs> I'm uh, imbibing the spirit of the question. Uh, well, what about head coverings and Paul's instructions in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, where he does seem to take up this issue of uh, appearance and what is worn? Um, how have head coverings been understood in the Reformed uh, tradition, and uh, what's your take on 1 Corinthians 11? Okay. <laughs> fair, whoever wrote the question, fair play. I, I have overstated my case. It's the one place in the scripture. <laughs> tells you what to wear but not for a man just a woman so there's it's not really fair is it um, I was brought up in the Christian brethren where women covered their heads and it was it was viewed honestly as close to a sacrament the head covering it was like for the sake of the angels the angels are watching as Paul says um, so I once was a big believer in head covering I am no longer I think I was convinced Tom Schreiner in his 
in the book Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood has an essay on 1 Corinthians 11 and I think it's very helpful and he talks about how the in the Greek there is no word for um, covering I think uh, it's that the long hair is the covering the, 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 and I'm trying to find the file I'm seeing that little rainbow circle circling <laughs> and find the file there, one of the words is not there so let, let him let her have a covering on her head um, I think it is her long hair is the covering that she should look like a woman and I think there is a cultural context to it that the women prostitutes and promiscuous women were having short hair cut short shaved heads and Paul is saying this is not good a woman should have a covering on her head um, to so show that she's under the authority of her husband um, yeah Calvin goes with that kind of reading uh, and that's where I've sort of landed on that one now um, there was a professor Anthony Thistleton at Nottingham University he wrote a big commentary on 1 Corinthians 11 he taught my brother at Nottingham and my mum was talking to him at the graduation she said how is your commentary going on 1 Corinthians 11 and he said it's going well but I'm on, I'm on chapter 11 and he said it is proving to be one of the most difficult passages for me to interpret you know the history of the church uh, generally speaking women did cover their heads you know the Queen's funeral I don't know if you watched Her Majesty's funeral I'm British so I did and uh, I, I said to Jackie I said notice every woman has got a hat on her head uh, and so there's this tradition that that's what you do but and so I need to read up more on it but that's where I've landed if if it's good enough for Calvin it's good enough for me <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I have a joke about head covering, but I, uh, maybe not. <laughs> I appreciate you being here. It's been wonderful. This is bringing us back to some church history, if you don't mind. Um, maybe this, don't know what to, how to put this exactly, but I will. Um, the Reformation was a protest against the Roman Catholic Church. I guess my question is, why was there no reforming going on in the Eastern Orthodox Church? Was it geographically because of where they're located? Or I guess that's just kind of a, a church history question. And uh, if you can maybe speak to where they're at. I've, I've never heard of any reformation ever going on in the Eastern mm -hmm. Orthodox Church. Yes, I will claim mainly ignorance on all of that. Um, so I don't really know, and I haven't heard of a reformation in that in the Eastern Orthodox Church. Um, I think in God's providence, you know, you, you had Europe and the sort of Western Europe was the one really being affected at the time um, for lots of different reasons. There was a breakdown of the sort of central control um, of the Catholic Church there. And so it, it allowed the Reformation to happen. You know, uh, politically there was a lot going on that really, the timing was perfect in a sense. The Gutenberg press had just come out. There was this breakdown of the governmental powers. King Henry was rebelling against uh, the Pope. You know, there was so much going on. And I think in the East, those countries didn't have that kind of 
political instability at the time, and as cultures were less resistant to the kind of change that swept through Europe, Western Europe at that time. That, that would be my best attempt to, yeah. Thank you. Dr. Gibson, a couple, uh, one question, then I do have a bonus question for you as well. Um, first, what is, what is the history in the Reformed tradition of a daily gathering? I don't know if it's worship, maybe, but I'm just calling it a daily gathering, whatever that might be. I, I, I've seen at least some hints from understanding Calvin's Geneva that there may have been something there. Um, if there was something in the Reformed tradition, what did that look like? And is there any application or, or something that we should consider for today related to that? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, Luther had midweek services. He preached Lectio Continua during the week, and then he preached homily church calendar sermons on Sundays. Uh, Cranmer in the Anglican tradition had daily services. And Calvin in Geneva, yeah, there were services, I think, most days of the week. Um, Sunday was three services in the city. Interestingly, in the countryside, in, you know, Calvin had this company of pastors, and pastors were out in the countryside. They only had one service on a Sunday. And here's throwing a cat among the pigeons. Calvin never critiques them for it. Mm. You know, um, and so... I, I like going to church twice on Sunday. I think it's a good thing to close the Lord's Day with an evening worship service. I, I get uncomfortable when I hear people speak in a rather legalistic manner about it. And I, I think, A, you've never been to somewhere like Africa where you can't meet on a Sunday night because it's not safe to, because it's dark and people have to walk two, three hours to get to church. And the time they spent at church in the morning was longer than we spend in morning and evening worship. You know, they, they go and they worship from nine till two, worship service and then meal and all this. That's just a wee aside about twice on a Sunday, once on a Sunday. But Calvin had three times in the city on a Sunday, and then during the week there were services that he was preaching at. I, I think it's something that, again, we've lost in our tradition. Yeah. So again, let me go back to dreamland. Uh, if I was a minister again... Uh, if I was in a city, I think I'd put on morning services, a, a short 15, 20 minute service where a few basic elements of a good liturgy, <clears throat> a scripture reading and a, a short three minute thought for the day. doesn't need to be a sermon. Let's, let's get real how much time we have to prepare sermons. Just a three to five minute thought for the day that just gives people a bit of encouragement and nourishment from that scripture reading. <clears throat> uh, I would... Um, you know, it depends whether your church meets together as a church for prayer during the week or if it's all home groups. Uh, I would do alternative one-week home groups, one-week a corporate gathering, I think, and make the corporate gathering a mini church service and then have a time where you all break up to pray together in groups or all together, share prayer points, pray. But have it like a, a church service. So... Yeah, I think it's something we've lost, and um, that, that's a tradition that was there in these churches and has sort of died out. Was that your whole question on that one? Yeah, that was the whole question. I do have a bonus question. Yeah. Um, that is on uh, postures. Uh, what might be appropriate or allowed, <clears throat> and um, 
you know, I read you know, in Psalm 150, which I really enjoy singing, you know, there is a statement around, you know, uh, timbrel, you know, worshiping with timbrels and dancing. And, and I bring a question up around dancing, you know, because, and I say this seriously, because there are churches that we, uh, you know, our foreign mission field supports in Africa where I've heard reports, you know, of dancing. Yet, you know, here we, w- we may think that as, you know, akin to heresy or something, right? Yeah. Uh, is it heretical? Is it appropriate? Is it allowed? How do we, how, what's, what's a way to think about it? And I, and I do see it in when I visited uh, black churches here in, you know, and not charismatic necessarily, even Baptist churches, where the expression is different than the frozen chosen. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Okay. No, good, good question. I, I was brought up in Africa as a missionary kid. I lived back in South Africa when I was 19 for a gap year. I went to a Zulu church acapella singing but every song they clapped hands and they dance now there's dancing and there's dancing right there's presbyterian dancing and there's baptist dancing right? <laughs> there's, there's dancing and there's dancing right there's provocative dancing that's distracting it's it's provocative it's sexual like there should be none of that whatsoever in the church the church that I was in was a Zulu church, and the women and the men, they would just sort of sway, you know, from side to side while they sang. I mean, and I'm not just saying, I mean, this is so much a part of their culture, a part of their ethnicity, that when you sing to God, you move, your body moves. It, none of it was inappropriate, none of it was distracting to me. Um, their soul was overflowing in praise to God and they couldn't help themselves. But when, I, when we talk about dancing again, what do we mean by dancing? They had some movement. They weren't jumping up and down in some hysteria. Uh, they weren't in a circle and all cheering each other on. It, it wasn't like that. It was, it was like a congregation, but they would just be moving as they clapped and pray, praised God. Uh, I think for me... This is where our cultures are different, um, and we should respect that, for, for me. I think clapping hands is fine. Um, I think it's there in the scriptures. And my point would be, if, if it was acceptable to God in the Old Testament, as the people of God worshiping him, I find it hard to think that it's now, for some reason, unacceptable in the New Testament. Okay. Now, do I want to clap hands in every hymn? No. Some hymns, tunes uh, are good for it. Some aren't. Am I about to introduce it if I was a minister? No. But again, um, I want to say that I can't see how that would be allowed and acceptable to God in Psalm 150 and somehow like completely irregular and wrong and a corruption of worship in the New Testament. Now, some will say, but the regulative principle, you only do what God commands, um, that was the Old Testament. We're now in the New, and there's no command in the New to dance, to clap hands, to do these things. Uh, There is only um, sing to one another, making melody in your hearts to the Lord. So no music, just a cappella, you know, uh, and uh, no clapping or dancing. So... 
I think the regulative principle, I, I agree with it, I'm a Presbyterian minister, but it's how you apply it and it's what you mean by it. I think often the regulative principle is applied in a, outside of a biblical, theological, Christological framework that people just take this principle, they apply it in the old with Nadab and Abihu, and then they apply it in the new, and they say, see, we shouldn't have any musical instruments, a cappella singing, etc. But what that does is it, dis- it, it, it detaches the principle from the biblical theological trajectory. What is the point of Nadab and Abihu and their being struck down in death? It is that you cannot approach God how you think you can approach him. You can only approach God through his appointed means. Okay? Now, where does that come to its fulfillment? That's Old Testament ceremonial law. Where does that come to its fulfillment? In Christ. So the regulative principle for me culminates and terminates on the Lord Jesus. He is the fulfillment of the regulative principle. Let me put it like this. The regulative principle leads to the regulative, the the regulative principle of worship leads to the regulative person of worship, the Lord Jesus. That's the point in the principle. You cannot approach God whatever way you want. Your only way is through the Lord Jesus. He is your means of acceptance now. I think that's what the Nadab and Abihu incident and those kind of things are pointing us to. Now, we still need to then work out, well, what do we do when we get together? Is it a free-for-all? And I, I think at that point, you do apply the regulative principle. But I think we shouldn't be over-scrupulous with it in a way that cuts out the Old Testament, where the people of God were doing things that were totally acceptable to the same God that we worship today. They were acceptable then. How would they not be acceptable now? That's the bit that doesn't make sense to me. So... Um, am I okay with dancing? Well, it depends on the context. It depends on the kind of movement you're talking about. Um, and uh, maybe because of my background and upbringing, I, I've seen things, I've experienced things that makes me a bit more open to those things. So does that help answer your question? Thank you. Well, we got time for maybe one, maybe two more questions. So start here. Um, I actually have a a personal question about something that actually happened to me just a couple of weeks ago. I was in Arizona at Apologia Church, uh, Jeff Durbin, James White, very 1689 London Baptist Church. And I come from the Continental Reform, Three Forms of Unity, and uh, they partook in the Lord's Supper. And James actually gave the same qualifications that you did, um, that a baptized member is welcome to take the supper. Well, I was stuck in a conundrum because I do see myself as a baptized member of Christ's church, but they do not because I did, I did not profess my faith upon baptism. Uh, so I had to struggle with that question. Do I partake in this uh, from my own convictions or do I essentially play by the rules that are set forth by the under shepherds of that church? Ultimately, I chose not to. My question for you is, did I do the right thing? (laughs) You you chose not to partake or not to play by their rules? I chose not to partake. Not to partake. Okay. And you're asking, did you do the right thing? (laughs) Um, No way. (laughs) 
once, I've got nothing to say. Uh, I, I think I need a bit of time to think about it. The Ulster man in me, the Northern Irish man in me, is, is saying, you just take that bread and that wine. <laughs> to the glory of God, you know? Uh, if it was a one-off, if it was me, I'd, I'd have taken it. Um, if I was going regularly and they start asking me, I'd obviously tell them the truth and then they'd say, well, we don't want you taking it. And then I'd say, listen, it's been lovely knowing you. I'll see you in heaven. <laughs> I'll, I'll be on the front row. I'll wave to you. Yeah, if it, if it was me, I, th I would have taken it um, because I really think that sadly is is a place where that particular form of Baptist ecclesiology um, it it just reveals for me where I think Baptist ecclesiology and the biblical theological framework of Baptist um, ecclesiology and sacramentology is just off because here is the Lord's Supper and you're a Christian and you cannot take it and you're somehow living in sin. There's something very prejudiced and um, uh, exclusive in a way that the supper is supposed to be inclusive about it that just, for me, just sits wrong. So did you do the wrong thing? No, I think each to their conscience. You went with your conscience. So I'm not saying next time make sure you take it. You, you go with your conscience, you went with your conscience, then I think that was good. And in one sense, you were respectful to them. I think for me, it would be a case of, um, I'm gonna take it because really the, this is not right to restrict someone from that. You know, this is the bit I find totally ironic. If, if you were there and if you're a preacher, or I was there and they knew me and happy for me to preach, they'd let me preach. But then I couldn't take the Lord's Supper. But I'm worshipping with them, fellowshipping with them, but I can't take the Lord's Supper with them. I mean, I think for me that's where I would encourage Baptists to take a second look again at their doctrine of the church and uh, the sacrament, you know. Um, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I think this is the last question here. Dr. Gibson, um, can you talk a little bit about selecting readings for public worship? Um, so in our context right now, we're following, you know, adoration, confession, et cetera, and we're approaching selecting readings that kind of feed into those themes from various places in the New Testament and the Old Testament. And we're thinking about adopting something like the Revised Common Lectionary for uh, a regular pattern of reading through God's word in corporate worship. And I'm just wondering how the reformers approached selecting those texts and if there's, if that's a good source to go to or if there's other sources that you would recommend as well. Yeah, so I'm a bit ignorant actually on what the reformers did on that front. Um, I mean, the lectionary um, coming out of the Anglican tradition, is that the one you're referring to? The, a Lutheran, sorry. Uh, I, I don't know the origins of that, but the Lutheran one or the Anglican one, the Anglican lectionary, I think would be very good places to start. Um, I use Robert Murray McShane, the four chapters a day. Uh, I don't do four chapters, I do two chapters a day, but th that's one that will take you through the Bible, but then you've got to work out, well, 
you know, that's a daily reading is what I'm getting at. So that doesn't necessarily help with corporate worship. <clears throat> um, what would I do? I think, I think I'd probably look at the Anglican lectionary, which would be very good. But I think what I would also want to do is take whole books and in that year of the church, you know, read through those books on the Lord's Day. So pick Exodus and just a chapter a week with no comments to it. It's just that this is what we do at this point. So we are reading the Old Testament and it's this book kind of thing. Can, can you talk to, just briefly, I forgot to ask this part, I'm sorry, about where you place them in the service too? Because right now our scripture readings are leading into particular parts. And so I'm thinking there may be scripture readings that, you know, this is today's reading from Exodus or something that might lead very well into uh, confession, but doesn't necessarily lead well into adoration or Thanksgiving or something like that. There may be a different tone to the scripture than this particular yeah. posture in the service. Yeah. So for me, I would do call to worship, adoration, prayer, of, uh, hymn of adoration, call to worship, uh, adoration, him, invocation, prayer. I would do a reading of the law and vary that. Uh, confession of sin, assurance of pardon. Respond with praise, thanksgiving. And then at that point, I would do an Old Testament reading. Follow that by the creed or something like that. Gloria Patri. Epistle reading or New Testament reading. And then into the sermon. Uh, so I would, I would do it, yeah, I would do it after those initial elements. Um, I don't think you need to feel like every element needs to naturally go to the next one. Like, scripture reading should just be part of corporate worship. So, you know, wherever you place it, it's going to do its job <laughs> if it's just for the sake of reading this part of the Bible. But again, you want to break them up. You don't want to have three readings all in a row, and now you've got seven minutes about it. Like, you know, you want to think carefully about that. Yeah. yeah. I'll end with this one. This one's a good one to end on. Uh, a number of uh, uh, lay members here, I would say majority uh, yeah. laity here. Um, what advice would you give? What instruction would you give uh, for them on what to do with the knowledge of this conference? It's pretty good if they're members of churches that are maybe uh, pretty far away from uh, some of these practices. Yeah, so, you know, uh, here we are on a conference of Reformed theology, and for maybe most of you, you don't get to have a say on what's done in your church, and you'd maybe want to be able to reform it or change it. Um, I think having a, a humble posture is really important. Um, you know, basically, at Christmas, if, you're, if your church is far away from some of the things I've mentioned, you could always get your pastor a doorstop for Christmas <laughs> called Reformation Worship. Uh, you, joking aside, you, you could uh, be thy my vision, this little liturgy out here. You know, that's a more a personal devotional one, but it, I'm hoping it will influence pastors and churches. So, you know, you could, joking aside, gift that to your pastor or elders and say, here, I'm, I've really enjoyed this, wanted to pass it on, and be quietly praying in the background that they actually like it and, and start to incorporate some of it. I know a number of pastors have said to me that that book started to influence their church liturgy, the, the Be Thou My Vision. Um, and, and even just to start a conversation with the pastor and elders about hey, have you ever thought about why we do what we do in church, or could you explain to me 
what it is, why we do this element at this point or why we don't do these things that other churches do. It's all about your, your humble posture as you ask those kind of questions. You know, ministers and pastors and elders are constantly getting complaints about this, that, and the other, and it's, they're more open to hearing it if it's done in a way that's not critical, that comes with a, a humility and a willingness not to push anything. But if you're in a church where the worship is really bad and you're finding yourself week after week after week frustrated, then I think practically you should think of moving church. My parents were in a Baptist church. Uh, my brother and I, we were brought up Baptist, <coughs> um, uh, Baptistic, and my brother and I became Presbyterians and pedo-Baptist, etc. And my parents took quite a few years to come to accept it. They, they, they just at times could not believe we'd become, we believed in infant baptism. It was like heretic. Uh, but they came to it and, and then they were in their Baptist church and over time they, they became increasingly dissatisfied with their liturgy in their Baptist church and it, it was becoming a really progressive church. And there were services where the Bible wasn't even read and and so, you know, both David and I just said to mom one day, we said, it's, it's just not good for you spiritually to be standing. You come out of church more angry and frustrated than when you went in. And, um, and so over time they moved and they, they're now convinced Presbyterians. <laughs> they, they go to my brother's church. They've moved to Scotland to be near him. So, you know, if, if you really are struggling in your church, leave and find another church, but leave well, leave quietly and leave well. You don't, you don't need to kick up a fuss while you're leaving, just st state why you're leaving, but just let it be and go quietly and join a church where it's, there's the worship that you will find more edifying and helpful, you know. So the head covering one, in <laughs> uh, the brethren where I was, Sometimes a woman would appear, uh, come into church on a Sunday night, a guest of somebody or an outsider. And uh, some of the brethren churches that I was connected with were so strict on head covering that sadly they would say to the woman, where's your head covering? She'd say, oh, I didn't even know I had to wear one. And they would, they would pull out their hanky. Some of the men would pull out their hanky and, and offer it to the woman. That, that, that's how strict they were on it. The, the angels are watching and, you know. So, just always make sure you've got a clean hanky in your pocket. <laughs> so that it's not so offensive. Thank you, Doug. Join me in thanking once more, Dr. <laughs>